This is Artist Soapbox. Through interviews and original scripted audio fiction, we deliver stories that speak to your hearts and your minds. Hey friends, it's Tamara here. I hope you enjoyed the previous three audio fiction episodes from the Food for Thought Project. As you know, Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction, such as those three, as well as interviews with artists about their creative process. We're back to the interview-slash-conversational format with this episode and most of the ones to follow for this season. Today, I'm dipping in to introduce two of our new podcast hosts, Larmerov Jones and Griffin James. If you've been a longtime listener of Artist Soapbox, then you will likely know them, and you can also read their bios on the Artist Soapbox website. Have you looked at our beautiful website? I am so in love with it. Now, Lormerov and Griffin contain multitudes, of course, but here are some breadcrumbs for you to follow into their conversation. Lormerov Jones is an educator, director, choreographer, actor, and intimacy director. Lormerov currently teaches at Meredith College while continuing to freelance in all her areas of expertise. She has been interviewed on the soapbox several times, acted in an episode of ASBX Shorts, and will be super featured in the upcoming scripted audio fiction piece, Jesus Pancake. She is well known as a hydration advocate. Griffin James is an interdisciplinary theater maker and writer local to the Triangle area. They have a degree in English creative writing from NC State, where they were involved with the university theater as a performer, stage manager, and more. Griffin was the production manager for all six of the ASBX shorts and all three of the Food for Thought projects. (sighs) My blood runs cold thinking about all of that logistical management. You can also catch them voicing the drunk college student in And Eat It Too. Griffin was not typecast in that role. In this episode, you'll hear these two friends introduce themselves and each other. You'll get a sense of their style and vibe and what they'll be focusing on in their own episodes this season. Lormerov and Griffin are two of my favorite people, and I know you will love them too. I am so grateful that they have agreed to step in as hosts. And guess what? In the next episode, you'll hear me introduce two more of my favorite people and guest hosts, Juliana Finch and Mara Thomas. So stay tuned for that. Enjoy this episode with Lormera and Griffin. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. My name is Lamaric Jones, and with me I have a dear friend and former student. What is your name? My name is Griffin James. It's so good to talk to you, Griffin. I'm very excited about this introductory Hi. guest host episode situation. Am I? I am very excited to be here and incredibly excited to be talking to you specifically because I just adore you more than I probably should. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved you, and you know that. So let's not put so much sugar at the beginning of this episode. Let's ease into it. So Griffin and I are going to be introducing each other and interviewing each other as we are both going to be guest hosts during this season of Artist Soapbox. How are you feeling about being a guest host, Griffin? 
I am feeling excited, but nervous, but primarily excited. Looking forward to talking with the people I will speak with and incredibly honored to be on this platform. And why don't you tell us, and then I guess I can speak, what is your what is your overarching theme that you'll be exploring in your episodes? So I will be speaking with various people who create original works. I'm very interested in how these pieces come together. And I'm particularly interested in people who make really bold and unique choices within their work. Um, I know sometimes I will go to a production like Cabaret, and I already have that preconceived notion of what Cabaret is or will be. But with original works, the limits are just off the walls, and there really are no boundaries of what theater is or what it can become in those moments. And I just find that so incredibly exciting. So I'm hoping to talk to people to learn more about what that process is for them and how they bring it all together. And so can you tell me about your umbrella, Lamerv? Oh, sure. My umbrella is probably going to make people roll their eyes a little bit. My, But my overarching theme is care and what that word means, care of self, care of cast, crew, company, collaborators, care of marginalized artistic communities, care of artist process. So I'll be talking about how do we care for each other, which is a theme I honestly have been meditating on even prior to the pandemic, but especially the past two years as not everyone has been on the same page about how to care for each other. And I know self-care has been a hot topic for a lot of people, and it's even become a commodity for markets to sell. Community care, however, is something I don't hear about as often. So I'm wondering either what you're hoping to uncover or what you're hoping people will, will take away from the conversations you're going to have. I just want us to remember or maybe discover for the first time how interconnected we all are and that decisions that we make in our individual lives don't ever just affect us or even the people in our immediate circle. They really do affect the larger population, the larger community. And, you know, not to get too political, but I think this concept of mask wearing has really reilluminated that for me. This idea that, you know, I can meet or I can encounter a barista at, you know, a caribou coffee. That's where I've been going because they have some bomb ass hot chocolate. And we're in that in between space where like hot drinks are still okay if you get them early enough in the morning. And I can encounter my barista at Caribou Coffee and that person may be wearing a mask and there may be other people in the Caribou that are masked or unmasked to a certain percentage, to a certain ratio. And I have no idea how many other people those customers have shared air with, how likely it is that they've been exposed to any illness. and that their decision making in in this fictional you know caribou coffee can affect like can travel can you can trace it all the way to like my niece or you know my 
parents who are both immunocompromised who I might see three days from now. And just, just again, just like the through line of how we are all connected, which, you know, sounds very Disney Channel slash Fern Gully for those of you that are millennials, but it's actually just really true and accurate. And, you know, I had some sense of that before this major global event, but it's just been so much more at the forefront of my mind. And so I just want to talk about the ways in which art can illuminate that interconnectedness and how do we maintain it and how do we shift it in this new world because the old world doesn't exist anymore and, you know, newsflash, it's not coming back. So what are the adjustments that we need to make as community members, both in the wider community, but also in the artistic community? How are people shifting and changing and adapting to the new world? I will give snaps to that. Thank you, snaps. (laughs) I will be political. Do it. Wear your mask. It's just, it's just, it's consideration. Mm -hmm. It's consideration. It's empathy. It's empathy. And I don't like wearing them. Like, I mean, I am not a fan of them in like, yes, they are uncomfortable. And as someone that had COVID in December, I will Mm -hmm. say it's not, they're not that uncomfortable when you, when you have it. Yeah. Political. So speaking of new world and life changing, Griffin, would you talk a little bit about what it was like to be a college graduate entering into postgraduate life in a pandemic? Ooh, yeah. It was it was a bit rough. February ended and to my knowledge, I have secured an internship after I graduate and I'm going to move to Massachusetts and I'm supposed to open the first play I'm directing, and then I'm supposed to stage manage my first show, which of course none of none of that happened. And by the end of March, all of it was gone. I I had no job, I had no internship, I had no shows, no theater, and not a fun time, gotta mm. say. It was it was pretty rough as well, just because I I didn't renew my lease. Because I thought I was moving out of state following graduation. And so with no job and no apartment, I had to move back in with my parents, which is a very humbling experience for a postgraduate. Sure is. Um, I did it too. So, yeah. And so that was all very rough. At the same time, I have to say that I, I was fortunate that I had parents who let me move back in and that I have a relationship with my parents where I could move back in without it being a huge detriment to my mental health. And so I am very thankful for that. And it was it gave me a moment to decompress at the same time just because suddenly I'm I'm booked and I'm busy and then I'm not and I'm just suddenly floating unemployed. <laughs> yeah. And it gave me a moment to really reevaluate the trajectory of my life. It showed me some ways in which the trajectory of my life before was heading in ways that I, looking back, I don't know if I really wanted those trajectories. And so it's kind of nice that I ended up missing them after all. Can you talk about how your plans for your artistic life changed during that time? Yeah. So I notorious amongst my friends for doing too many things at once. <laughs> 
I've always got a gig going on. I'm always busy. And I don't really take time to slow down. I'm very bad at that. The trajectory I was on pre-COVID was very much just going to maintain that. I was just going to work and freelance and work and freelance until maybe something happened. I don't know. I was really just in the mindset of, I need to make a resume. I need a resume full of ex- of, of experiences. I definitely bought into the idea of hustle culture, which is a very easy thing to buy into when you are a student or an early career professional within the arts, because there's just that fear that the moment you stop working, the work is going to stop altogether and mm-hmm. no one will want to work with you or even pay you for your work because you don't have the experience they deem necessary. Or you'll just be forgotten. Yeah. And I look back now and I, and I honestly don't know how much longer I would have been able to sustain what I was doing. And I, I remember in the moment that it was all happening, I remember just thinking, that's college. College is supposed to be burnout and hustle and work. And you're just supposed to be tired all the time anyway. <laughs> but then I was put in the, the situation where I could not do theater. Theater was not happening. And I had a moment where I realized it was kind of nice to just decompress. And it made me reevaluate how I wanted to navigate those spaces moving forward. I'm trying to be more conscious of the projects I take on within the frame of everything else in my life, which is a funny thing because I'm also bad at following my own advice because I ended up falling back into old habits in 2021. Talk about that post, that post, I don't want to say post-pandemic, but tell me about that you know, reemergence into work and then subsequent burnout experience. Yeah, for sure. So basically, theaters were beginning to open back up, and I had missed theater terribly. It was my primary creative outlet within theater, and I was freelancing pretty much nonstop from January through the end of October in 2021 all while working full-time. Tell me about specifically what roles you were occupying during this time. Yeah. Around the beginning of the year, I was working as a playwright on a show that I wrote that was getting a staged reading at NC State University. And then I was working as a production manager with Artist Soapbox. And then I was ASMing a Zoom show. I was assistant directing and assistant dramaturging with you for Device 2020. And then I was doing more production manager stuff, and I ended up leaving a gig because there were a lot of things going on at that time. But it also came back to my personal life was a little bit in disarray, and I just had to step away from a project to really get my shit together (laughs) before I could Mm -hmm. jump back into any other work. And another project did end up coming along, and I was very happy to have that. By the time I reached that, the end of the other project, I was feeling that burnout again. And I I was just very tired just all the time as I was working through that final project. And there were moments where it felt like I wasn't enjoying the thing I used to love so much. And that was the scariest thing for me. And that's when I really knew that I had to take a step back and give myself a breather so that I don't grow 
disdainful of theater, which is just something I hold on to very dearly. So what changes would you say you've made or what adaptations have you made to help you prioritize what projects you accept and which ones you turn down? The first thing I had to do was learn how to say no, (laughs) which is not something I was particularly good at before. Normally, I would just get an offer and I would jump right on it because I was just happy to have work to do. But once I got better at saying no and leaving projects that don't serve me in the way I feel they should, basically, I I look at the, the work itself and whether or not it is work that I would be proud to be a part of. And I, I look at the team's who I would be working with, because who's in the room matters immensely. Yep. Yeah, if you're you're working with people who are just unpleasant, that's not going to change. No show can save that. Well, never say never. I don't know. (laughs) No, I think you're correct. (laughs) But, (laughs) But yeah, I try to take a deeper look into who I will be working with and the content I will be working with. And whether or not I'm getting paid matters as well. If I'm going to accept work that is unpaid, I need to enjoy that work. I need to enjoy the show and I need to enjoy the people I'm working with. If I don't leave feeling fulfilled artistically, then I don't know why I'm there providing free labor. Amen. Why don't you take a turn, Griffin? You've been talking a lot. Why don't you ask me a question? (laughs) So on, on the topic of of myself being an early career professional, what advice would you give to artists, particularly young artists or students? What would you tell them to help combat the idea of hustle culture as they're trying to establish themselves? I just want to state for the record that Griffin sent me these questions beforehand, and I'm still acting as though I, you know, I did not read them as if I did not know he was going to ask these questions. <laughs> and that question is so, that question is so, it just punches me in the gut. And this is where that, and I hate the phrase imposter syndrome because there's another phrase that's been used within an inch of its life. And it just doesn't even have meaning anymore, I feel in some ways. But the little voice in me that says, you are not qualified to answer this question because you yourself, me, myself, am still trying to figure it out. But I can say what I have started to do. And it's also a hard question to answer because not everybody has the same levels of privilege. You know, I always had a house I could go home to, you know, similar to what you said, you know, you had to move in with your parents for a little while. If worse came to worse, I had a house I could go to. If worse came to worse, I at least had a couple of people who I could ask for money if it got that bad. It only got that bad once or twice, especially when I was living in Cincinnati and driving a Mini Cooper like, I don't know, like I was Charlize Theron in the Italian job, like I had that kind of money. And so it's a really hard question to answer because not everyone has access to the same resources that I did. It's really easy for me to say, only accept the gigs that you're passionate about because mm-hmm. those will be the ones that like drive you, especially like when, you know, when the money is not great and blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and so, and everyone's threshold is different, right? So I think advice that is applicable to everyone is, and, you know, it sounds like you might've learned this the hard way, Griffin. And unfortunately, like that's the educational model that most 
artist students or young artists sort of have because, I mean, academia is certainly not preparing art students for a life as an artist. And then, you know, everyone who's now in a place of power or has some sense of stability is saying, well, I had to suffer, so so do you. And so putting feet to the fire is literally is the is the primary way that artists figure out young artists figure out how to do the thing how to make a life not a career notice i say that how to make a life in the arts so i think a a safe regardless of privilege and resource access thing to say is try to figure out what your limits are before you are burned to the end if that makes sense Try to figure out what your limits are before you're so wiped out that you're resentful of your art. I have burned myself to the core trying to do too much. What do y'all, what do the young people say? Trying to be extra (laughs) at least three or four times. And every time there is this, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, ask yourself if you still like it. The theater, which is my primary discipline, has lost so many great artists because we do not prepare our young artists in academia, I'm speaking from an academic point of view, to figure out how to feed themselves in the midst of creating their life, their creativity life. We focus on practice, we focus on technique, we focus on craft, we do not focus on here's how to eat. Mm -hmm. So my number one rule, and that's like, you know, it sounds like I'm sort of copping out. But if you don't figure out how to feed yourself, it doesn't matter how talented you are. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you don't figure out how to feed yourself or if you don't have that set up, you know, if you don't have the community infrastructure, as I call it, to know like, oh, you know, if if it takes forever for me to get my freelance check because people never pay freelancers on time, I know I can get money from my mom or I know, you know, this great aunt you know, this childless aunt that doesn't have kids can spot me for a little while or like some source of support, you know, whether it's financial or otherwise or mental. So like really figuring out how much you can take before you get to the point where you've overdone it is an ongoing process. And it's a process that you should begin in college if you are in college or that you should begin in your late teens and early 20s and like really start paying attention. I think that Gen Z is doing a much better job of giving the finger to organizations that don't value them and that want them to contribute free labor, you know, for exposure, blah, 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 blah. I think that generation is doing a better job than us millennials did because we were told, oh, it's going to be great. Just go to college. So I'm just going to leave it at that because that is the most important, you know, what I'm basically describing is, you know, a word that I throw around all the time, but like awareness, awareness of what actually drives your artistic passion, like that's a good thing to have. Not every project is going to do that for you, but it's a good thing to know, like what gets your motor going. And then just spend a lot of time being honest with yourself. Like, is it really possible for you to multitask and do two, three projects at a time? You know, some people have that gift. I had that gift in my twenties. It flew away when I turned 30 which was really unfortunate because I was writing grad school when I needed to be working on several projects and my body just shut down. I think that that's like a really good long-term project that all young artists can start to figure out is what is my sweet spot in terms of amount of work and how I work? 
And then you can think about like who you work well with, who you'd prefer to work with, blah, 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 blah. But having that good, solid foundation of this is the level that I will accept and anything above this amount, whatever it is, is unacceptable and I must say no. Again, what I'm describing is awareness and boundaries. Once you discover what your boundaries are, it makes you that much more intentional about the work that you accept. I just got to say that does not sound like cop out at all to me. I, I think that is a very beautifully said answer in regards to hustle culture for not even just young artists, but just a lot of people. I'm still trying to figure it out. And that's why I'm saying, you know, I I am not, I don't have all the answers, but I am sort of in this place where I don't have to worry about money anymore. I have a salary. I have health insurance. I am saving for retirement for the first time in my adult life. I turn 39 soon. I am finally at a place. I've been saying no quite a bit the last few months. Again, I recognize that that is because of the privilege I hold as someone that now has a salary. And I had started the process of learning how to say no to projects that I had a feeling were going to be too much for me to, that were above my threshold at the time. And also just keeping in mind that as you grow as an artist, your threshold is going to change. It might, you might, it might increase, it might decrease. There are so many things that might cause that increase or might cause that decrease, you know. There's family stuff, there's family obligations and responsibilities, you know, and, and those types of things affect different people, different ways. I lost my grandfather and I threw myself into work, whether that was healthy or not is another podcast, but I did more shows in 2008 than I think I've maybe ever done in like, even to this day in my career, because I really needed something to keep me above water. Again, whether that was healthy or not, whatever. But my threshold for work increased during that time. For other people, they probably would have had to take take a step back and have a smaller threshold for what they were able to accept. So it is a lifelong process. There is an ebb and a flow. And I just want to normalize that and say that that ebb and flow is natural and normal. And you should expect that once you think you have a grasp on it, it will change depending on all of those factors, you know, family, financial situation, location, the weather. And I'm not joking. Like people that know that have listened to this podcast before have heard me talk about living in Ohio and how not seeing the sun for six months totally changed my threshold for how much work I was able to do because I so depend on the sun for energy, which we all do. But like, it really affects me. Like my seasonal depression would not allow me to work. So I'm right there yeah. with you. I know a lot of people who were complaining about daylight savings because they, they want that extra hour of sleep. Yeah. I get it. I hear it. And yes. I'm craving <laughs> that, that extra sunlight. I, I need that sunlight in my life. The Monday after daylight savings time when it was when it was seven o'clock when my partner got home from work and I literally said, Why are you home so early? And then I looked at my watch and it was seven. Like I cried. <laughs> I was like, oh man, it is my season. And I just listened to a couple of friends a little while ago complain about how awful daylight savings is for 
for people with kids because now the nap schedule is an hour off, the bedtime schedule or the bedtime routine is an, is a, is an hour off. And the kids, you know, they don't have a logical processing of, oh, like we've shifted are just like, why are mommy and daddy acting weird? Yeah. You know? And just to circle back, you had talked about how you've hit like four different periods of burnout throughout your career. And I was wondering what steps you take either now or as you are in those moments to care for yourself and to get yourself through it. Gosh, when you say it like that, it sounds really terrible Four periods of burnout, but it's really true. I mean, gosh, it's such a cliche, but you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. (laughs) And that problem is that you are burned out. And I think that sometimes people don't want to admit it because then admitting it is sort of like agreeing to tumble down the mountain, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like once you start skiing down the mountain, you can't turn around and go, oh, I'd like to start that again, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense of admitting it means it's real and admitting that it's real means that you have to deal with it, right? And dealing with it is where the labor is. So admitting that you're burned out is number one. Number two, drinking water, which... (laughs) (laughs) Like, yes, it says hydration coach in my, in my Instagram profile now, because that is what I am. Three, getting yourself through whatever period, like picking benchmarks or dates that you can look forward to as this is a date when something will leave my plate. This is a date where I can maybe take an exhale because I think what part of it is, is like people want to spend time in that moment when they are still mid project or mid projects going, how did this happen? And how did, and then beating themselves up. And how did you let this happen again? And why do you keep doing this to yourself? Blah, blah, blah. It's not useful in that moment, like that reflection, because then you're not working on the project because you're freaking out about how behind you are or whatever, or how overwhelmed you are. So just like, you know, I hate it. I hate this, this phrase and it's so capitalist, but you know, just push through or re stop and reassess and say, is there something that I can let go of? Is there something you know, you mentioned stepping away from a project. Is there something where it will be okay if I just step back? If I just say, you know, there is this website. Gosh, this is going to have to go in the show notes. But there's this website. It's called like how to say no. And then it's like a, it's a series of templates that you can download for lots of different ways to turn down jobs or offers or anything. And then there's also, you know, here's how to step away from a project template. Dear person, when I originally accepted this project, I anticipated that I would have more time or I would have X amount of time to put toward this project. And now my circumstances have changed. I am wondering if we should part ways. Here is a reference for a person that, you know, that may have more time, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, take a pause, see if there's stuff that you can already move off of your plate, you know, unfinished or that you can pass off to someone else. It depends on your discipline, but that, if that's a possibility, investigate that and, and then pick dates that are thresholds for when you can exhale, when you can take a breath. And then when you, here's the part that I'm still struggling with. When you get to those moments when you can exhale and take a breath, journal, bullet point, write down how you're feeling in this moment, what, if you want to reflect, where did it go south? Where did you lose control or where did you overextend? What, what was the offer? What was the moment? And then maybe ask yourself why? Because sometimes there's a good reason. 
I really wanted to work with director X, or I finally got an opportunity to do this thing that I've been trying to do, you know, for X amount of months or years, you know, there's sometimes there is a reason to say yes to the thing, even if you don't have the full capacity for it, you know, it's a career opportunity. And so those are decisions that are, those are things that might always be in competition with each other is part of the capitalist model that we currently function in. And like you've mentioned, like we all function in it. And so it's really just sort of, again, ebbing and flowing and fighting against it when you can afford to and when and when your mental load is full. And then there might be moments when you bend on your threshold a little bit and say, actually, this is a really great opportunity. I feel like this is a safe space to do this thing, to do this project, to play this part to intimacy direct this thing and I want to be here and I will make it work. And being realistic, I think is the hardest thing about what you can actually make work. Does that make sense? Like that last part? Oh yeah. Like I really feel like I can make this work, even though like it means that I won't have a day off for five weeks. Like, is that really realistic? Is it though? Like really having to ask yourself the tough question, being honest about The answer to those questions is the hardest thing, but it is the thing that will serve you the most in the long run. And you reminded me of a quote from Oscar Wilde as you were were speaking. I think it was Oscar Wilde. We can fact check later. I believe it was Oscar Wilde who said, everything in moderation, even moderation. That sounds very Oscar Wilde-y. Yes, it does. Yeah. I have nothing to add. Oscar Wilde, yeah, wordsmith that he is. Well, we are a little over... We are, but I'm going to ask you the last question on my list. Uh, Okay. I actually have two left, so we'll see. And you can actually... Maybe I'll ask both, and then you can just pick whichever one you want to answer. So the first one is more advice. So like, what advice do you have for young artists looking towards graduation? Or... Do you have a favorite devised or original work that you've seen and or created? Mm. So you could answer both or you could just answer one. Advice I would give to people who are looking to graduate. I would say don't be afraid to get involved with companies outside of your university or your institution. Because one thing I ran into is I graduated. I had really almost only worked with NC State Theater during my four years. I I had stepped outside for a couple small projects every once in a while, but for the most part, NC State Theater was my home. And then I graduated, and I couldn't go back to NC State Theater, <laughs> but I didn't really know anyone outside of NC State Theater. And so I'm suddenly having this hard time trying to make connections with other theaters and to get involved And so I I would tell young artists looking to graduate, well, not young artists, not every person who's graduating is necessarily my age, Mm. but I would tell people with graduation on the horizon that don't be afraid to step outside of your institution because you can learn things outside of a university. I'm still learning quite a lot from people outside of academic institutions, and there is value in what you can learn from other community theaters in the area and having those connections is just so very useful and if you have those connections when you are graduating it's a lot less stressful than i'm um, just walking in blind <laughs> and hoping they like you 
And it's also just a really good way to network early, especially if you think you're going to stick around in this area after you graduate, because there's, there's, there are several companies producing theater wise here. And there's always people looking for, I mean, not just actors, but also technicians. So especially if you're a technician, just getting your name out there is, is going Mm -hmm. to be fruitful at some point. And I will say, I hate to admit it. I hate to say it. People like to work with who they already know they work well with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I spoke with the director who was trying to cast a role and I suggested someone who I thought would be very good for the role. But he looked at me and he said, I've never worked with her. So no, even though Mm. she had a full resume and me as a reference, maybe I'm not a viable reference. I don't know. But just hearing a director say that he didn't, he doesn't want to cast people who he hasn't worked with prior set off a red flag. Mm-hmm. And I will be fully honest and disclose that a lot of the gigs I got out of college were from former professors who wanted to work with me again. And that's how I started to ge- be integrated within more of the community theater is through them and not necessarily because I, I networked my way <laughs> into it. Gotcha. And, and I mean, if it wasn't for s- some of those professors, who knows where I'd be? <laughs> Oh, what a fun thought. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And do you have a favorite devised or original work that you've seen and or been a part of the creation? Yes. My favorite original show that I've seen is Trailer Park Christmas. (laughs) And you're talking to an original cast member of Trailer Park Uh, Christmas. What? No, that. Wait, seriously? No. I was originally on the. Yeah. Am I lying? I'm pretty sure I'm telling the truth. The first year they did it, I was the nosy next door neighbor. I sang Rockin' Around the Xmas Tree. And then I was, is it amazing that it was so long ago that I don't remember my third character? But the second character I was, was, you know, like they're in a trailer park and they get a visit from from the developers that own the trailer park, like Mitzi or Miffy or this is terrible. I'm so sorry, Rachel Clem, but I was the wife of the, of the developer. I wore so many wigs in that show, but yeah, Rachel, you know, I was, I'm a singer and Rachel needed someone who would sing. So I came and sang rocking around the Xmas tree because you don't say, you know, the C word in that, in that, in that role in that show. Yes. (laughs) is such fun. That's such a fun revelation for me. I'm so glad that we got it in real time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I originally just went to see the show because Rachel Clem created it. And I I love Rachel. And I wanted to support Rachel. And I went with Adonis. And oh me, oh my, we had a fucking riot. What a fun time. It is a special thing, isn't it? Yes. And, and I mean, maybe I just saw it at the perfect moment in my life because I was caught up in the hustle culture when I saw that show. And I was getting to a point where I was just viewing, I was beginning to just view theater as work I do rather than something that I enjoy to do. But then I went to Trailer Park Christmas and that show was just so fun and so funny and so different than anything I've seen before that it really just reminded me of why I love theater so much. Excellent. I love that. I think that's a great place to end. 
It was so lovely to just talk to you for a little while, Griffin. We should do this more often. We should. Well, Griffin, it was lovely to talk to you. And I look forward to hearing your episodes. Likewise. I'm very excited to see what you have in store. Yeah, I'm digging this experiment. Mm Mm-hmm. Established in 2017, Artist Soapbox is a podcast production studio based in North Carolina. Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction and an ongoing interview podcast about the creative process. We cultivate aspiring audio dramatists and producers, and we partner with organizations and individuals to create new audio content. For more information and ways to support our work, check out artistsoapbox.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Artist Soapbox theme song is Ashes by Juliana Finch.